Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've gotten, that is your time. I promise you will not regret investing it into the next hour. We are gonna maximize your life and your understanding of how to bring remarkable, unexpected new products to life. I've got two guys that I've been trying for years to get on Suncast, and they're both entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs and uber successful. And I really am honored that I've got a chance to have Daniel Flanagan and Charles Pimentel, both who now have re-merged their careers at a company called Earthos. Many of you probably saw their big splash back in June when they kind of came out of stealth Well, I reached out and said, guys, I got to get your story. Uh, Let's talk about what led to Earthos. And uh, that's what this conversation is about. A little bit unorthodox from the typical because I've got Daniel and Charles, who both, frankly, deserve their own Suncast episode to dive into their back uh, backstory. We'll try to do a little of that today, but mostly we're going to look at what it takes to bring unbelievably new emerging technology to life in a successful way. And two guys who've done it categorically well. Uh, If you like this kind of conversation, you are in the right place because that's what Suncast is all about, helping you level up your game in the clean energy and solar industry. Uh, We keep adding conversations about other types of clean tech, but we've mostly focused on solar. And uh, we've got more than 390 episodes of founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com or frankly, right there in the podcast player that you're using. Did you know that Spotify just became the most popular podcast player out producing iTunes. That surprises me. If you're in Spotify, I'd love to know it. Why don't you just uh, go ahead and shoot me uh, a message, Nico at my Suncast, and let me know uh, what player you're using. Or if you have ideas for other conversations and uh, guests that we should have here on Suncast. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Okay, well, hold on to your hats because today's going to be a fantastic conversation that uh, is going to flow through the careers of two guys I have watched uh, and admired for literally decades, plural. Uh, First met them both when I was a wee lad in the solar industry back in the aughts, trying to start my own solar companies and working my way up uh, through Trina and other manufacturing companies. Had a chance to first meet Daniel Flanagan, who at the time was uh, one of the co-founders at Zep. Solar, a name you guys might recognize, bought by Solar City and rolled into Tesla. And then uh, through my time at Trina, I competed against and got to know really well Charles Pimentel and the team he built at Solar Frontier. So sure, if you don't recognize those brands, then you're in the right place because you're going to learn a ton about how the solar industry has come of age. Uh, but first, let me introduce these guys to you formally. Daniel Flanagan and Charles Pimentel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nico. Great to be here, Nico. Daniel, you've sort of always been in the electrical side of the business, starting uh, your own uh, solar company as well, way back in the day. Do you remember the moment when you were first inspired by the concept of 
renewable energy, solar electricity, and how how that came to be the thing that you knew you were going to focus on? Yes. Um, and it was prior to me having a career in the solar industry. I went to school at Humboldt State University. And uh, in my last year there, uh, I had a girlfriend who was the director of this campus center for appropriate technology. I made a deal with them that I would get to live in her room in exchange for being the, the cook there at the, at the demonstration house. So I cooked them three meals a day. <laughs> <laughs> it was an off-grid house on campus, basically. So um, that's where I first learned about, about solar. There was batteries in the basement, solar up on the roof and inverters and composting toilets and all that stuff. But really getting into the, to the, my career in the solar industry was somewhat incidental to the fact that after college, I just focused on a simple lifestyle, Zen Buddhist meditation practice, poetry, things like that. And I was living in a, in a remote community in Nevada County uh, that was off grid. So my community, my, and when I say community, I don't mean like a commune. I mean, there was just people that just had 40 acre parcels and they're living out in the woods and they had they had um, off-grid systems. And uh, I was basically um, cleaning houses, chopping wood, stuff like that. And then I got into construction sites. And then one of my artistic mentors was Gary Snyder, um, a well-known beat poet here in the U.S. And he lived up there and I lived on his property for a while. So I was doing odd jobs for him. And then he was doing additions. And then I was doing construction and I was gravitating towards the electrical. And I had a, a mentor that was sort of like the local solar guy, Kurt Lorenz. And I learned all my initial knowledge of that trade from him. Um, studied, went back, went down to the um, uh, community college um, in Roseville, learned the electrical trade more formally, started Black Oak Electric, and then just started doing electrical work, it was just that the community I was serving happened to be off-grid. So that equaled solar electrical work. So you started Black Oak? Yeah. Did you ever work for anybody? No. Okay. Did you know coming up that you had this entrepreneurial gene? Is that, how would you describe that? No, I don't, I don't think so. No. Was it a conscious decision? Like, I don't really want to get a job. I think I can do this myself. Well, Leaving college, I actually planned on maybe going to India or something like that and living in a monastery for a while or something like that, or just traveling the world or hanging out in the jungle. Um, and then I actually got type 1 diabetes in college and my whole my whole mindset flipped. I'm like, oh shit, I need to make money because I got to buy my medicine. <laughs> so that's actually the moment where I decided I need to actually really work. And so, but, but I was still committed to, but I didn't need, I wasn't looking to make a lot of money. I just needed to buy you know, my medicine and so on. Um, so then it just kind of evolved of, of, you know, so now I'm, now I'm in the environment I want to be in making money to survive and buy medicine and so on. And now, uh, the solar industry starts blowing up and I'm just in a position, right. The, you know, net metering and the SMA inverter coming out, enabling, you know, good tech for gridtized systems and so on. And the, and the California energy commission rebates, I was just sitting there when that happened essentially. So I just kind of rode that wave. And for those unfamiliar, we're talking like this is mid aughts, like 2004, 2005, a couple of years before uh, Schwarzenegger signed the, what, what is now the famous million solar roofs initiative. So, so you started California solar company called California solar electric. Um, I'm going to come back. Yeah. Just rolled black Oak into a corporation basically. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to come back to that moment because being able to ride that wave is one thing being able to effectively become like a Mavericks level big wave surfer that you have is another. But first, let me uh, reintroduce 
Charles to the conversation. Charles, you have an equally fascinating uh, story. I'd love to know, did you have a, you know, I don't see a particularly like specifically starting businesses entrepreneurial path for you. However, I know from knowing you that you're very much an entrepreneur and a leader. Uh, When did it become clear to you that uh, you were interested in renewable technology? Gosh, renewable technology. So as an engineer, I got my start in construction. I loved being outdoors. I loved I loved being, you know, on construction sites, running equipment, driving equipment, digging, whatever it might be. I had relocated from uh, Annapolis, Maryland, back to Saratoga Springs, where I'm from, up in New York. And I was I was working for a uh, an architect firm building the parking garage, the the 4,500 car parking garage at the Albany airport. I was living out of a construction trailer. I used to listen to George Pataki's state of the state of the state address every year. And there was this little company that, that he always mentioned. And it was, it was uh, plug power. And I said, Hmm, I better, I'm going to go check that out. And, and usually funny story how I ended up there, but I, I basically got a job and was hired on the spot to build plug powers, first manufacturing facility. And so I, I, Came in on day one. Wait, roughly what time period? This was 1999, November 1999. This is the last century, man. Yeah, this is this is heading into the the dot com boom, right? And the, but the boom and bust, of course. But heading uh, this was uh, again summer 1999. So I come in, tear down an existing building, build a new building, just to the wall for about 18 months, trying to get this building up before we went public, and we managed to get it done. Uh, managed to come up for air, climbed out of the literally the, the footing trench and looked around and said, man, this is some cool stuff. You know, I was fitting out labs with hydrogen, fitting out labs with oxygen, all sorts of stuff and made the trek over to our chief marketing officer who ended up being, you know, one of my one of my greatest mentors, even to this day, is a huge mentor of mine, a guy by the name of Mark Sperry, who was the chief marketing officer at the time with Plug Power. And I said, Mark, I'd I, you know what? I've always had a passion to sell and I've always had a passion for business. I'm an engineer. I can, I can, you know, I could build stuff. I could take stuff down, but this is, this is what I want to do. So he said, okay, I've seen your work for the last 18 months. Come on over on Monday. You start. Wait, you, you, you went, you basically went over and said, I, I don't want to be an engineering anymore. I want to be in sales. Absolutely. He was the guy that gave me the chance. He said, you know what? Come on over. Someone along the line needs to give you a chance as an engineer, I mean, how often do engineers shift into sales unless they go into sales engineering, tech engineering, all that stuff, and gradually it shifts. And uh, I didn't want to wait. And in fact, it's something I always wanted to do. And and much of my training, much of my experience was all had that as a as a kind of a, a end of the road for me was that's what I wanted to do, always wanted to do that. So I, I, I went over there and I spent nine years driving fuel cells, hydrogen fuel cells into a market where we were disrupting the market of lead acid batteries, lead acid batteries, uh, combined heat and power in houses, buildings. Eventually, you know, that, that, uh, you know, we were 15 years before our time, of course, and, and plug power is still there. Uh, you know, over the years, they've raised two, three billion dollars and they're doing an amazing job. And it's it's a it's an amazing technology. But when I when I ended up, I ended up one of my other mentors, a guy by the name of Greg Silvestri. I told him, look, Greg, he was the president at the time, I believe, 
So look, I, I want more out of my career. And he said, you know what? There, there comes a point in your career when you need to make a change. And if you want to do that, you need to leave. And I've told many people that work for me that in the, in the past, if this is what you want to do, it's just that opportunity isn't here. So I left and I, I joined a, a flow battery company out of, out of Boston for premium power. Uh, is there about a year that that didn't work out? Picked up my picked up my boots, went back to back to Saratoga Springs. I started a I started an executive headhunting company in what at that time was called the Green Collar Job Market, and there was basically me and Hobbs and Town at the time, right? I mean, this was back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, right? And so my business blew up. It took off. Everyone wanted to be in the green collar space. The problem is I didn't want to be a headhunter. For me, it was yet another means to an end to get the job I wanted, and that was in solar. You did it for more than four years. What's that, headhunting? Yeah, I mean, it's good money. Oh, no, no, no. It's it's uh, the, the business was there for a while, but I didn't actively do it, but yet for about 18 months to two years. I see. And that's when, that's when Greg Ashley, who had left Sun Edison to go help Canadian Solar start Canadian Solar Americas, uh, called me and said, hey, Charles, uh, love working with you. You did a great job. Come over and run sales for me at Canadian Solar. And so that's literally how I fell into solar. And I said, you know what? It's it's some cool stuff. I'd love to do it. And so did. And and that was uh, 2009 timeframe. And I never looked back. I love the, the the technology and the industry. It's just such a cool industry. You mentioned that having arrived at a position of leadership where you have a team and you see that folks you're mentoring are growing beyond the opportunities you have. What advice would you give preemptively for someone who's listening that is themselves, they're themselves questioning, like, what's the next step for me? Because what I find is a lot of times, and you probably saw this in your recruiting uh, period, folks either a don't recognize that they are, they, they need a bigger push, a bigger campus. They need a bigger environment. Or B, they feel, and this is probably what I want you to speak to most, they feel a sense of obligation. They don't want to let their boss or their company down, even though they recognize there's no upward path for them. What do you say to those folks? That is a tough one because um, I was faced with that, with that very challenge. And all I can say is, you know, in preparation for that, that happening, and it happens to all of us at some point in our job, right? And in preparation for that happening, in preparation for all sorts of things in advancing your career is you need a good, a good mentor. Pick a mentor actually and make it a thing. Don't just, you know, call the guy or gal every once in a while and say, hey, I got to ask you a question. Make it a thing that you sit down every month, whatever it might be. Well, mine was, like I said, Greg Silvestri. And and he was just a, a, a right to the point matter of fact, hard-nosed leader in our business. And he said, here's my suggestion. I want you to write down 10 priorities of yours. What's important to you in your life? And then the second thing I want you to do is to rank them from first to last. And if the first is stability, okay, that's fine. If the first is, I want to make more money, that's fine. If the first is, I need benefits, I need to be able to buy my medicine, right? If whatever the first is, you want to travel the world rank them, go to the first one that's most important to you and come to terms with it. Come to terms with it and embrace it and go after it. Knowing full well, you might be wrong. And in my case, I was wrong. I was looking for more money. 
and I left for more money and it just was not all it was cracked up to be. So I changed mine. I changed my, you know, my number one priority, but I constantly keep that list of 10. It really comes down to just figure out what that first and second and third priority is. And like I said, come to terms with it and don't let anything stop you from going to, to achieve that. And maybe it's, it, it could be as simple as making a bigger impact at your existing company, whatever it is, just grab a hold of it and don't let it go. And don't be afraid to, to let it change too over time. So, I mean, that's, that's advice I, I give to a lot of people. And, and as leaders, us as leaders, we need to let those people shine, right? I've told people that work for me all the time, if you want to go, I'll help you. I'm not here to stop you. I'm here to build leaders. I'm here to build a company. But the last thing I want to do is have you in a position where you just simply don't want, you don't want to be, right? And I've always tried to, to get that across to people that, that work with me. If you don't like it, I'll help you leave. But if you want to stay here, let's make the best of it and make the best of your career. I love that. It's great advice. Uh, one of the things that for me is really resonates in that list is, especially early in your career, it's, it's preferable. Not only is it okay, it's preferable that you take decisive action to test whether or not you actually understand your priorities or if you have them in order, right? Like you said, I'm solving for cash and it turns out like I make cash and I'm still not happy. Uh, well, my priorities are out of order. Let's rejigger this list and figure it out again. The earlier in life uh, you can do that, the better. And the, 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 the more experiments you can run like that and attempts you can make like that prior to even marriage and children, the, uh, the better as well. That's the biggest one. <laughs> yeah, totally. But I will yeah. say, you know, what I find is, uh, and this is the sad part, and this is universal, doesn't have to do with the renewable energy industry. A lot of folks do get in that wife and kids uh, or, you know, spouse and children uh, boat and the priorities reshift and they have to stick around in that job because they do need the healthcare or they do, they've gotten comfortable with that six figure salary and, and dreams fade and they feel stagnant for years, decades. So it's rare early, this early into uh, an interview that we get to really uncover some gems around cultivating the career, a career that is meaningful. Um, so I appreciate that. Thank you for bringing that in from, from your mentor. Daniel, circling back to California Solar Electric, you started California Solar Electric about the same time, a couple of years before uh, I jumped into the solar industry and started my company. And, and so I remember at that time, it was just like, it was this, it, there was this fevered pitch in the California market where almost anyone and any company that could get their act together could succeed because there was so much opportunity. Uh, and it's actually not unlike, you know, I'd say the last three to four years that we've sort of seen that spirit again. Uh, but it begs the question, because I saw a lot of folks go in and out of like building solar companies, and as, as did you. California Solar Electric, at some point, you, you sunset that and started this racking company that itself was emblematic of like a crazy dynamic shift where you were trying to help solve a problem in the industry. Could you enunciate that the moment where you, or the, the time period where you were seeing an opportunity to be an inventor, a creator, and step out of just sort of bolting on other people's products and create something that you thought would bring the industry forward? I think you'll you'll see a theme um, here where 
I'm much less intentional than uh, it, it might appear. I, I really view things as having happened to me <laughs> or like, you know, a wave hit and I did my best not to, not to drown. Um, and just, to, um, and just to clarify, and this is part of the answer to your question, but um, California solar electric company um, wasn't, wasn't sunset. I essentially handed it off to my uh, foreman and friend, Lars Ortegren. And it's the, it's the, it's the top, solar company, certainly in Nevada County, but probably in a five county area uh, up there today. So, and the circumstances around that, um, that actually led to that. And my move into Zep Solar was essentially was the, the financial crisis in 2008. The impact on the foothills was tremendous, um, you know, much worse than I think people experienced in the Bay Area um, or other urban areas in the U.S. That area where I was living was, um, uh, the economy was um heavily uh, made up of construction jobs and so on. And, and construction basically came to a halt. To save the company, I essentially took myself off salary. I wasn't making any money anymore. I was kept, kept my guys on. I was looking for opportunities to grow the business even while, while that was happening. So I took a, uh, did a, a weekend seminar with Jack West at Fort Mason in San Francisco. And he was, um, uh, you know, Jack was my partner who, who founded SEP Solar with me and his wife. And he was doing seminars on commercial uh, solar construction documentation. Basically, it's like you, you want to do a two megawatt system on a, you know, a building somewhere. This is how you do the design of the calcs and the construction sets and the permitting packages. So um, I went and sat with him for the weekend. I uh, was quite impressed by, by Jack and his knowledge. Um, I had a lot of overlapping knowledge, but he was clearly a very unique um, in, in the industry and in his knowledge set. And I thought, and maybe this was my first more entrepreneurial thought rather than just running a construction business, which was, I thought, hmm, because there was all these executives from solar module manufacturers and, you know, they're learning about, about this stuff. And I thought, huh, this, this, this could be bigger. Like what Jack's doing is really valuable and it could be bigger. So I propositioned him and said, Hey, um, why don't we grow your business? Like I'll come in and, and help you scale. Obviously this industry is going to continue to grow. What was the business that you were telling him you should, you should grow? His consulting business. He was doing consulting um, for projects, but he was also doing these um, educational seven seminars also. Got it. So the full scope of what I saw him doing, I saw could be done at a much larger scale. And he said, well, yeah, maybe, but I've got something else um, that's more interesting that I might be interested in getting your help with. So um, I signed an NDA and um, met him at a restaurant in Petaluma, California, and he had a bandana with a bunch of milled steel widgets in it, and he dumped it out on the table. And those are, you know, the proto Zep cams and stuff. And he explained to me his idea, and I it just made sense to me. The concept of pairing anything down, but but in this case, a mechanical system down to its essentials and um, deriving more value out of it by cutting out what's not necessary just resonated with me immediately. And I essentially signed up on the spot to come and help them um, launch Zep Solar. Uh, and that was roughly late 2008, 2009? 2009, yeah. Early okay. 2009. What was the promise of Zep for the industry? As an installer, what did you see when, when he dumped all this stuff out on the table? Yeah, I saw, I saw a mechanical system that had far less material in it you know, essentially eliminating a whole stratum of material, the aluminum rails and speed of installation. What it took us a little while to figure out was the small 
solar contractor didn't necessarily care about that. Um, you know, we'd go and say, well, we can, we can double your, your throughput. And they'd say, well, yeah, but I don't, I don't, then I'm going to have to send my guys home for the rest yeah. of the week. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it wasn't really until we got to, to sell to the the large companies like Vivint and Solar City that the business model really kind of snapped into place. You and I talked before, and, and there's this uh, concept of removing core components out of the primary product. So for those who are perhaps unfamiliar in the residential solar space, the way that panels are racked to roofs is you put this thing called an L foot. Uh, traditionally, you, you sort of screw it into the roof, and then you put these extruded aluminum rails essentially on top of it. And then the panel lays on top of that. What uh, Zep and what you guys innovated around was basically a rail-less system where this the the product was integrated and it was really probably i, I don't know if this is 100 percent true but it must be it must be like the first truly like module integrated component that the industry the industry saw did it from the very beginning require that you not only create this product but then sell into the module manufacturing chain? It required that we license the groove feature of the mm -hmm. frame to the solar module manufacturers. So Got the it. business had two facets, license to the module manufacturers, since we own the IP on that feature. And then we manufactured and through our contract manufacturers and sold into the market, the hardware that would lock into the groove to enable the entire system. Right, right, which eventually led to relationships with, you know, Enphase and others to really tighten up the the speed of install. To connect their, yeah, microelectronics to the groove as well, yeah. Correct, yeah. So bringing it full circle, how did you and Charles first meet? So in 2010, Canadian Solar became the first licensee of, of Zep Solar, um, which happened uh, in conjunction with Grow Solar uh, becoming um, the first distributor of our hardware. Um, the corresponding hardware. Jeff Wolf, who's the CEO of Grow Solar at the time, had this concept of National Zep Week, which seemed funny and, and grand, but we just totally went for it. It was it was actually a great idea, and we organized uh, three different box trucks that were going to hit different parts of the U.S. I think maybe Northeast. I don't know. I'm not sure if it was Midwest or Southeast. Mountain and then West Coast. And yeah, we were we were West Coast. Although um, anyway, so. Um, the format was you, you get a box truck, you get a, you get a rep, rep from Canadian Solar, a rep from Gross Solar, and a rep from, from um, Zep Solar, and you put them all in a box truck, literally like three up in the front bench seat of a box truck. And in the back, you've got the materials for building a mock roof and all of the modules and hardware and so on. You pull up to a, a hotel conference room somewhere, and you've invited a bunch of contractors to come and learn about I'll learn about Zep. So yeah, Charles would have his uh, his tool belt on, and we'd get the drill guns out, and we'd build the roof, and we'd conduct these trainings, and we did that at multiple cities uh, around the West Coast and Southwest. And we ended up uh, eventually replicating that model with Trina Mount when I was at Trina. I'm listening to the story, thinking, God, this sounds really familiar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, uh, we did the same sort of like tour around the United States and do all these demos um, of how the product works. Cool. So you guys met because, as Charles mentioned, he had finally gotten his dream job in uh, solar and he was at Canadian Solar. And Grow Solar was my account. Oh, wow. So I was right in the middle of it. Yeah. Fun. And, 
And Charles, so, what do you, yeah. Charles, what do you, what was your first thought when you saw this, uh, this Zep mount product? Oh, I was blown away. I'm a guy that's always looking for a better way to, to do something, always looking for a better mousetrap. You know, it, it, it wasn't that we needed it to drive sales, but you needed it. You needed that innovation to get past your competitors. You always got to innovate to get past your competitors. And that's what I saw like immediately. It was uh, definitely something that put us us at Canadian Solar for a short time there, like light years ahead of everyone else driving into the market. Yeah, the whole Zep thing was was kind of cool. I mean, Daniel and I and another another fella ended up sitting in the front of a box truck driving from Phoenix to Denver, training probably three different crews of installers every day at different hotels. It was it was just a super cool experience to do that with some really neat people. You know, I think we're definitely going to be spending a decent amount of time on this idea of the complexity of new product introduction. Both of you have had an opportunity to work in an industry that's burgeoning, an industry that has gone through unbelievable growing pains and, uh, and high growth, so fast build, and in complementary areas, like obviously with Zep, uh, you had to work with module manufacturers, and Charles, you have a tremendous amount of experience in the module manufacturing side of the business. So we'll have to take a look at it from two different angles, uh, but I want to come back around, Daniel, to the core really understanding the core piece of like, as an entrepreneur, it seemed as an outsider looking at Zep, like this is a near impossible task. But yet when I came in at Trina, we were, I don't know, second or maybe the third module manufacturer that you had effectively convinced. What did you learn in the process of becoming an innovator, uh, a, a patent holder, a product manager about how to convince you know, a, a, a partner, a key partner in the, in the segment, one that is predominantly in on another continent. What did you learn through that process of how to engage stakeholders so that you can line up the pieces necessary to bring your product to market at scale? The Trina example is an interesting one. It's not that this was super intentional or some master strategy. It just, it's kind of just how it worked, which is, you know, we'd go out to uh, InterSolar in Germany or PVSEC and we would just build a roof and we'd have, we'd have tool belts on. And the, the trade shows back then didn't really have that much of that, you know. So your, your, your colleagues at the time that were, you know, running the European business, it just resonated. It's like, it's not just on a data sheet. There's this activity going on. There's, there's, there's this thing you can, you can get your hands on and, and see. And we would draw crowds, you know, at all the, all the trade shows. So there's a theater element to it, you know, in a, in a way there's a, there's an entertainment element to it. I think that was coupled, you know, by the fact that although the solar industry was exciting and booming, the particulars around being a module manufacturer were not particularly dynamic, right? Like from a technology point of view, it's like you had the modules quite sort of static. And so we had the ability to show executives at the module manufacturer uh, companies something sort of exciting so that that's just like like i say it's not that that was the that was the um the grand strategy but it is how it happened and we we attracted interest through doing cool shit basically you know i believe project developers really are the unsung heroes of the energy sector and it's high time we had our own project management software built for us 
by us. Email, Dropbox, MS Project, you know, they might help you get by, but truly in a post-COVID-19 world, we need to move faster online. With decades of experience moving projects from idea to operation, our friends at Enion know firsthand just how painful it can be relying on generalist software to get projects over the line. So I'd like to encourage you to give Enion Project Manager a try for free today. Enjoy enhanced security and cooperation with your entire team. Centralize your tasks, teams, files, and financials all in one secure place. Deliver more projects fast and at a lower cost. Go sign up today for free at www.enian.co. So Charles, your uh, experience uh, was quite a bit different. It's it's harder to, in many ways, harder to make something sexy when it in, in many ways is very similar to other products in the marketplace. Uh, tell me about your journey from Canadian solar to solar frontier, where you spent a decade and then ultimately became the CEO for the Americas. Tell me about the reprioritizing of your list again and how you ended up at solar frontier. It was interesting because I, uh, you know, I was a Canadian. I loved the solar industry. I, I, I loved the people I was working with and everything, but there was just something missing. And so I started, I started looking around at, you know, what are, what's, what's cutting edge in solar. I came across a, a little company that was looking to market a, a thin film solar panel across the industry. And that little company was General Electric. I talked with General Electric for some time. You know, we had discussions about coming over there and helping them start basically GE Solar out of Schenectady. And it would have brought me back back to the East Coast and everything. And that ended up crossing me with Solar Frontier because Solar Frontier was essentially white labeling for GE. And Greg had left Canadian Solar and gone to Solar Frontier. And he said, you know what, just just come over here. Let's let's do this together again. So I went over uh, to Solar Frontier, you know, within a within a couple of years, just rose into a management position, relocated to California from Saratoga and took the helm of what ended up being just a, a super ride. Uh, I can't still to this day, I can't believe it was 10 years, but it was a super ride in a market in an industry that was just growing exponentially. And we had gotten so much commercial traction. We had a we had a great team. I mean, uh, we had a great team. I mean, sales was was being led on the ground by uh, Boris, you know, Boris Feldman. He was awesome, right? He he landed some of the biggest early deals and and just did a great job. But we ran out of product. We did not have enough enough capacity. So we ended up striking a deal with the state of New York to build a solar plant in Buffalo, of all places, wow. right next door to a little company called Salevo. Salevo. So, See, our, our, our paths keep crossing here, Daniel and I. It was like, yeah. it was like there was, this was meant to happen. Yeah. So started looking at building a factory there and the, and the, the board back at Shell, Show Shell basically said, Charles, you, we're not going to let you build a factory in the U.S. unless you can de-risk the offtake. Well, one of the offtake of whatever we build, the modules we produce, can you guarantee me you can sell it? And I said, well, the best way to do that is to diversify our business, go downstream and become a developer would become our own customer. I mean, it's a tried wow. and true uh, method. I mean, for yeah. solar, sun power, you, you name it. A lot of these companies do it. At Solar Frontier, we ended up acquiring Gestomp North America, uh, Pablo Teens and Javier's company there in San Francisco. And we, we brought that whole pipeline in, ended up building it and building a development team 
over the next eight years. You know, I became this, the CEO of the development company itself, always reporting into Tokyo. But um, the thin film solar panels were not, I mean, they, they, they were certainly were not, you know, mainstream, but they could be sexy. And we made them as sexy as we could is another thing where it just wasn't shooting fish in a bucket. You had to, you had to really, really work to, uh, to get every sale and to convince every bank and convince every developer this is the right way you should go. Despite the fact that you had Show Us Shell as a parent. <laughs> well, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, gigantic balance sheet. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, that helped. Yeah, so you had a chance to, you know, I had the double-edged sword of First Solar having relatively strong market acceptance for thin film, but also uh, folks being reticent to, to try something different from First Solar. Well, if I'm going to go with thin film, I imagine... If I'm going to go with ThinFilm, I'm just going to go with First Solar. Why would I choose Solar Frontier? I'd love to know maybe some of the insider baseball, you know, between you and Boris and Albie and the sales team of how do we unseat the incumbent? Because I think a lot of us have that as our charters. We got to unseat the incumbent like Zeppa did with, you know, ProSolar and Unirac and all the racking manufacturers. How did you go about thinking about the strategy around that? At the end of the day, it, it came down to something you just you just referenced which was balance sheet. We wanted, we, we weren't playing in util, in, in residential. We weren't playing in, in uh, commercial. We were playing in big utility scale and utility scale, like it or not, is a financial play, right? And the investors at the other end of, of the rope don't want the risk. And to the extent that we had the ability to mitigate that risk with balance sheet, you know, it made us all the more appealing and got to a point where, you know, companies, big companies, real developers, real IPPs were willing to take the risk because we helped mitigate the risk. And at the end of the day, it, it worked really well. We achieved commercial traction very quickly. And it also went down to relationships. I mean, relationships are everything. Once you get past the, the admission that this is a financial play for the end investor. Boris had great relationships. I did, Albie did. I mean, all, everyone, everyone I've ever worked with had amazing relationships. And if you didn't, that was, that was one of my things is relationships and your network. Uh, you know, we'd have, we'd have younger, you know, junior engineers and developers at our, our parties that we throw at InterSolar and and SPI, and I know you've you've been to some. There were great parties, but we, we would get these these you know internal groups of younger guys and gals that would just kind of congregate by themselves. And one time I walked up to them and I said, "Your challenge, should you choose to accept it, is before the end of tonight, when this party is over, you each have fifty individual business cards from someone you didn't know before." And sure enough, man, these these kids they they went out and did it, and. Networking, networking, networking. So those relationships and drawing on them and building the trust of, uh, you know, the the ultimate end customers is something that I've always held near and dear for me and for the people that reported to me. And you know, Boris commanded that trust. Uh, Albie certainly does and others always did as well. So that was the other piece of it, just relationships. And unfortunately, bankability is always part, always part of it. I'm going to, I'm going to connect the dots here in a moment around, uh, you know, the, the original concept of removing core components out of a primary product and, and, uh, sort of disrupting an industry again. 
before we do that, uh, I'd love to know. So one of the things that, as you just mentioned, the larger uh, manufacturers have invariably done is create a development company, which gives you, Charles, a lot of experience in how utility scale project development comes together. Uh, what were some of the things that for you over the last eight years, perhaps just disenfranchised you about the way utility scale projects are won, the way that kind of, how do you, how, how they select the person that's going to do the deal? You know, I referenced this earlier where the, the, it's an ultimately a financial play. And that's the one thing that, that disenfranchises me about the utility scale industry is that, the, you know, at the end of the day, it, you know, everyone loves this concept of an ITC. I love it. The whole industry loves it. But it is investment tax credit, which which in and of itself uh, sounds great. But, you know, who has to build a, you know, a 200 megawatt plant? Who has $70 million in, in tax appetite to go into that? Right. And there's there's it's not mom and pop. It's not Main Street. It's Wall Street. And so that's that's nothing against Wall Street, but it. It changed my view about you know who's benefiting from solar, who's uh, who's ultimately pulling the strings on on pulling the industry in, and that that investment tax credit, don't get me wrong, went a long way and is continuing to drive this market. But it's not Main Street driving it, unfortunately, at least not in the utility scale space. Main Street, sure, there's still some there, but even there and in residential, I mean, these guys aren't aren't building. 200 residential homes every day with Main Street tax equity. So that's one of the things. And I'd say the, the biggest thing is, is this, this concept of pushing the envelope of, uh, of, of the, you know, bringing your, your valuation back to today's NPV and developers trying to drive up their dev fee through uh, inflated numbers on a, on a financial pro forma on a 35-year model that some are pushing to 50-year, right? Who knows? But if the investor, the long-term investors agree that it's a 50-year model, you can do all sorts of things. And the financial engineering that goes on behind the scenes on, on developers and, and uh, financial planners is really the, the biggest, the number one thing that really disenfranchise me with the industry. I hate to use that word. I still love the industry. I love what we're doing. But it's one of the it's one of the things that um, just leaves a bad bad taste in your mouth when you enter and get deep into the world of development and investor uh, independent power producing. It also it's a very homogenous market as well, right? Like but if you put yourself in the shoes of a buyer, you may get on a 50 or 100 megawatt bid, uh, 100, 200 bidders. Oh, man, and yeah. I would imagine that the pricing that the buyer is seeing is all relatively tight and similar. It is relatively tight. And, and I, I often tell the story about the last PPA that, that uh, Alby led and Solar Frontier won before I, before I left was roughly a 50 megawatt project um, in the Bay Area. And we ended up getting awarded the project uh, one of our projects won the won the the PPA, but we were literally one of hundreds bidding into the same PPA, and everyone, every bid was within a dollar a megawatt hour. And be, because the the thing is, and this is the second thing about not necessarily disenfranchised, but what I got frustrated with is that every developer is using the same inverter, the same racking, roughly the same racking, the same modules. The you know they're paying roughly the same for land because all the landowners understand what, what they get. And that's why everyone ends up at some number. And it came down to how much risk are you willing to take 
on your PPA and on your development security deposit that these numbers are going to work three years from now? How much risk are you as a developer? And it's another way of saying it's a race to the bottom for margins for developers. And and some of them, you know, make out great, right? You make out great three, four, five years later, but many of them just simply get burned. And that's that, I mean, I'll, I'll come back to this, but this is really what led me to, to, to Earthos, frankly. So before we get into the Earthos story, I'd love to hear, were there things that for you as a product guy uh, who really understands how the solar industry and the solar product itself goes together uh, that you kind of hold as maybe lessons learned or uh, revelations, even getting a chance to work uh, inside a company like Tesla and with uh, a magnanimous person like Elon. Yeah. If I, if I can even go back a little bit, my, my first experience with a magnanimous individual was actually at at zap and you know like you said earlier i i I didn't have any formal training i think i just happened to be surrounded by people that knew way more than me and were way more experienced than me when we started zap jack had lots of connections one, one of whom was tony fidel who essentially invented the iphone for all intents and purposes right he he pulled the Toshiba, you know, hard drive off the shelf and created a device and and a prototype of iTunes that was purchased by Apple and then ran that division. And um, Jack did work for him, but he actually was an it was an an advisor um, to Zep uh, at the beginning through his relationship with Jack. I think, and I'm I'm answering your question more on a on a on a personal level more than like any strategy around like we can get to the the product marketing piece of it but i think that the thing that sort of shaped me or allowed me to advance was to to have the opportunity to be in front of these mentors and to not shy away from being yelled at being ridiculed being you know like and and like a, the real tough love type type part of it and i can remember being on the on the phone with with Tony and him actually screaming at me. I didn't care. I thought it was amazing. I'm like, holy shit, Tony Fidel is screaming at me. That's freaking amazing. I mean, you know, and Tony went on to create Nest and, you know, Google bought bought that for 3 billion. And I remember when when he, you know, left Google and then the stories around it, it, it seemed like it was like he had too hard of a personality. And there's a millennial generation, you know, that, you know, factor in there, I'm quite sure. And I, I don't know the details of it, but I just imagined, oh, those guys couldn't hang. Like they couldn't deal with Tony's intensity. But in, in my experience, that is one of the best ways to advance to not like not have an ego around. Like the, the goal is not to be right, in fact, uh, or, or best or have the most advanced viewpoint in the room. In fact, most of my career has been spent being the sort of the opposite of that so that I can benefit from, from, the, from, from, from that input of those magnanimous people. You know, what I saw in my direct experience with Elon was that, and it kind of goes back to that thing about don't try to be right all the time. Don't try to be smart and don't try to kiss anyone's ass either, whether it's Tony Fidel or, 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 or Elon. There's a lot of that, that, you know, went on, uh, you know, around Elon where, where people are just not, you know, I mean, I have anecdotes about Elon seeking information that no one would give him. Um, it's not my, my relationship with him was not like that. I, I was seeking truth with him. He was, you know, always seeking truth. 
that I wanted to facilitate that, whether it was scary or whether he was going to be pissed or whatever, you know, so. That's so frustrating to leaders to have people that work for you, you know, people that are doing stuff for you that are afraid to tell you the truth. And I've run into that so many times because they're, uh, uh, they just don't want to disappoint for whatever reason. They just don't want to give you the truth or, you know, maybe, maybe they have conflicted agendas with, with what you want or what the company needs and wants. But I, I'm, I'm always, Hey, listen, the truth is always the best. The truth will always surface. So you might as well just be, just be, you know, be genuine about it. Charles, thank you for that contribution. I really, it's actually a super in, important for folks, folks to be able to get the context of how organizations can and, and should be more, more trusting and open, but also willing, as Daniel just said, to receive feedback as input, not insult. Daniel, I have to imagine that your time in like Zen Buddhist meditation state helps with that candidly because we you know you 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 have always seemed to me like very grounded uh but also a a guy who just has a ton of ideas i want to go back to this idea that elon is a truth seeker could you give me examples where folks were not uh, willing to to help him along that truth seeking journey i don't even know really what the question is but i'm sure that you have tons of examples from tesla yeah, I think a good example um, would be um, with solar roof. Elon's vision was always to do the entire roof. Yeah, the solar roof product. Yeah. So we pitched that product, Jack and I pitched that product to Elon uh, initially. And um, it really became the centerpiece of his of his strategy with, with, uh, with solar. Anyhow, well, Lyndon and Pete, his cousins who were running uh, Solar City, would come to Jack and I um, often and say, how do you make solar more beautiful? Um, like what, what, you know, what can you do? And we said, well, yeah, we've got a lot of ideas uh, in, in that, in that regard. And then um, we said, well, for one, we make the, we make the, the roofing solar and solar, the roofing. And they said, great, come down to Hawthorne and pitch this to Elon. And so. Wait a minute, you and Jack invent, like essentially invented the solar roof. Yeah. No yeah. We, we, we pitched it to, um, we pitched it to Elon that must have been an interesting process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, that it was pretty easy. I feel like actually. that's I mean, I think... that's like introducing a product to Jeff Bezos at Amazon. In my <laughs> in my mind, it's like in the same category yeah. of holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, it you know I think it it, it I mean the, obviously the economics were challenging uh, for it, and it, it's taken a while to get to where they are now. But the principle of it was just very appealing to Elon. It's like it's yeah, make, make the root don't have roofing and solar have the whole thing be the same. So. To the example um, of this, you know, truth-seeking thing, or um, uh, how to provide honest um, input to a magnanimous executive, um, his vision was always to have every single tile on the roof have PV cells, you know, be solar-producing cells, and people were very resistant to it, but never gave him a reason why. Never gave him a first principles reason why you can't do that, and we would doing demonstrations out of Fremont. We had mock roofs up on containers up in, you know, up in the air so you could view it from the ground and so on and so forth. And he just kept coming back. Well, why, why can't we have it on all, you know, all faces of the roof? Why, why can't the entire roof be, be solar? Because he never got an answer that made sense to him. He just, you know, kept pushing on that. And, and then, you know, one day I just said to him, well, on some houses you, you, you might be able to do that, but on, um, 
on a lot of homes, you're going to run up against a, a constraint, which is going to be the bus rating on your electrical service. And you might be forced to do a 400 amp uh, panel upgrade that may jack the economics or transformer upgrade or so on. So I think he just kind of absorbed that. And then two weeks later was the next time I saw him and he came back and he got out of his car and he walked up to me and he sh shook my hand and said, I really appreciate the input that you gave me last, you know, last time I was here. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's really that simple. It's like, just take what you know and help your boss or your colleague reach the truth of a, of a, of, of a matter. It's just, and don't, don't let the fact that they're your CEO stand in the way of that. Cause your CEO wants that. They want to benefit from what you know that they might not see. Plus you're also, uh, yeah, you're filling in gaps and helping them in some way, like not ask uh, erroneous questions or, or, you know, appear foolish. Uh, one thing I've loved about Elon at least from what I've studied uh, or been exposed to is that he, he doesn't care about whether or not he looks foolish. He cares about whether or not he understands. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So you effectively invented the solar roof. Is that how, is that how you and Charles kind of reignited your relationship? Was there ever a moment where solar roof was not a, a Salevo product? To be clear, um, the solar roof product was, I'd say, you know, invented by you know, the concept was was iterated by Jack Jack West and I, and then obviously developed, you know, through the team. But your question about Salevo again? Yeah, I was just curious. Like, did you guys ever consider? Clearly, you probably considered like what other technology to use there. We may not need this. May not be relevant. Like, we maybe should. Yeah. Just so, move so on. Daniel, I think I think where we did come back together was uh, Elon was looking for the right look to the roof. Right. And thin film, thin film can do that. It can it can change the look of the roof from, you know, a purple or a blue polycrystalline. Right. And so, yeah, the, the, that's one place where we we at, at Solar Frontier were able to provide some samples to figure out whether or not, you know, thin film could make a better aesthetic solution. Let me move to present day, because as I mentioned in the intro, uh, and yes, it sometimes takes me an hour to get this far along, uh, for those who are listening, wondering, but we mentioned the intro that, uh, you guys are now both on, uh, the executive team of this company, Earthos, that had a big splash. Um, I'm sure Daniel, you had, uh, some say in how that, uh, was done a, a few, a few weeks ago. What about the current environment of utility scale is broken or or slow enough to need innovation. And in particular, the kind of innovation, Daniel, that you tend to bring to technological change and adaptation, uh, which is taking core components out to make things more efficient. Talk to me a little bit about the problem that you're trying to solve with Earthos. Yeah, well, as Charles alluded to uh, earlier, the utility space is extremely competitive and you know bids come in extremely tight with very you know little variance from one to the other so how do you how do you break out it doesn't it 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 requires a, you know a whole new concept it requires something radical so where we ended up with earthos is just that like it you know it, it, it there's a, a similar example in zep where you took out a whole stratum of of material by eliminating the rails at ojo we took out 50% of the steel on the foundation. In Earthos, you're taking out 100% of the steel on the foundation and you're creating a completely different model. So Earthos isn't an evolution, it's a revolution, right? It's a, it's a complete shakeup of the whole design principle of the utility scale 
uh, system. And so I don't think you're going to get get there without that kind of a shakeup. So effectively taking the complete racking structure for you know, it's doing the same thing uh, for utility that Zep did for residential, removing all of the substructure and effectively laying the modules flat to the surface that you want to mount them on. Charles, why do you think that that is compelling? And, and how did this uh, product idea or team come together? I can tell you the, the the last team I built was a team of incredibly smart people, incredibly experienced, motivated, but the utility scale solar development design construction operation space is, is it has stagnated. It has stagnated for quite a while. Throughout my career, I've always said, why are we any better than anyone else? Why are we any more competitive than you know the the incredibly successful Bateman Energies of the world, the EDFs of the world, you name it? How how are we going to be any more any more competitive on a 200 megawatt PPA than recurrent, right? And so I don't have all the answers and never pretended to. So I asked my team, how do we compete? How do we beat these guys? How do how do we improve where we are right now? And there, there's, there's really no easy answer and nothing just kind of pops out. You can argue the, the usuals of, you know, we got lower cost of capital, but that's not sustainable and, and it's, not, it's not provable either. We're willing to stomach more risk. That's not sustainable either. And it's just not, a, not a necessarily a good business plan. So what, what companies find themselves doing is driving down overhead by getting rid of people, getting as slim as possible. That's why you see small small developers making huge headway, right? Because they don't have an entire procurement department, technology assessment department, HR department, all that stuff. The overhead's much better. Well, you know, back to being kind of disenfranchised with with the solar industry. There's no there's no innovation. It's stagnating. You know, after being at Solar Frontier for ten years, building that development team, building the module business, we parted ways and. I reached out to an old an old uh, friend of mine, Jim Tyler, who who is the original idea about guy behind Earthos, and he said, "Oh, as a matter of fact, I'm I'm up to something. Let's have coffee in the city tomorrow morning." And I said, "Well, I'm not I'm not going to be in the city tomorrow. Uh, parted ways with Solar Frontier last week." And he said, "Well, shit, then I'm coming down to have dinner with you, right?" <laughs> and he came down, and we, you know we we met in Palo Alto, and he came as it turns out, with one of his board members. And I was like, Jim, this isn't just dinner, is it? And he said, there's a, there's one of two people that I would want to come in and help me build this business with the idea that I've come up with. And you're one of them. And so that's how I ended up getting to Earthos. And once I came in, I realized this company has some gaping holes in its path from where we are right now to where we need to be two, three years from now, right? It's, a, it's an amazing concept. It's quite frankly, a better mousetrap. I saw it on the, the second he described it to me, but it's going to require the right team and it's going to require all of the expertise necessary to align planets and align stars. And so we started we started recruiting and, and the first guy we went out to get was was this guy who has seen it over and over again. You like to have people on your team who have seen the movie and, and that's how I ended up back with Daniel Flanagan. <laughs> Gave Daniel a call and said, hey, man, let's let's talk. <laughs> Daniel, walk me through kind of what was going through your mind when, you, I mean, you're building, as you just referenced, Ojo, which we didn't talk about. Uh, it's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but you're already in the process of trying to help innovate and figure out how to remove waste and cost out of a utility scale, which 
all of us agree is going to accelerate the growth of clean energy in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, what goes through your mind when uh, Charles and Jim reach out and share this idea with you? It, it was very similar to when when Jack put the the little steel mill mill steeled parts out on the table at the restaurant. It just it it was really obvious all of a sudden to me, and um, I had gotten to the point at Ojo where I was primarily operationally focused. When this opportunity was presented, I saw it as a, a challenge that really um, required all the different facets of, of what I enjoy doing, um, both contributing to the, you know, operational, you know, financial planning, but definitely the creative, the marketing, the communication. And I thought, wow, this, this is disruptive. We need to create good communication, new ways of seeing things around this whole thing. This is what I, this is what I want to do. And uh, I believed in it, you know, Im immediately, you know, and I, I didn't, I didn't see it as, I think it's important um, with a disruptive product not to be overly attached to the status quo, right? Like you want to challenge it. So just sort of in my, in my thinking around the sanity of, of the concept, I didn't, I didn't, I don't see it from the point of view of, oh, there's this new scary thing that no one understands yet. What are all the problems with it? Why won't it work? I mean, you do do that. But my primary point of view is I say, well, well what is it challenging? And I say, okay, let's, I did a like, little mental exercise where I said, okay, let's imagine there's a world where there, there are no trackers at all. And, and the status quo is you put solar panels flat on the ground. That's just how, but, but say there's certain problems with it that you haven't worked out yet. And I said um, to myself, would you ever, as a solution to that, decide to create a system which, you know, in my mind was like a tracker system where you're tripling the land requirement um, you're adding a huge amount of steel and mechanical complexity, doubling the time it's going to take to install it, you know, all so you can, you know, drive a, a little more energy from each panel. And it, that didn't make sense to me. So whereas some people might say, oh, well, putting solar panels flat on the ground doesn't make sense to me. I shifted my perspective and said, well, the way we're doing it today doesn't make sense to me. I just did that sort of mental test and, you know, obviously, you know, thought thought through and did had discussions about some of the fundamental principles of of you know temperature and hydrology and so on and so forth got comfortable with there's you know there's no first principle showstopper here you know let's do this and let's you know let's 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 continue on the technical development path and let's continue on the marketing and communications and how to describe this to the market and let's go so i want to role play for just a minute with both of you i don't want to pick the wrong company that you might in fact be in conversation with but like i'm a large ipp and you are talking to their uh, executive team, trying to, where, where do you, Daniel, from a messaging perspective, uh, have you historically learned that you need to start for this product introduction concept? Is it have the top tail engineering to evaluate it? Is it going through procurement? Uh, and then what is that message that you want to convey about the need for change? Mm -hmm. So the particular approach with a particular customer, I, I often, you know, I, I would defer typically to the sales team and Charles's team, but to fit that particular customer's need, like what's the pain that they're feeling that's most specific. My job is to create a narrative in the background and all the primary messaging behind it for them to, to pull on. Um, at the end of the day, it's, it's really about LCOE. So we don't, you know, we've, we have all these EPC type minded benefits like, oh, 70% less trenching, 70% less water, et cetera. But at the end of the day, what does the developer want? What, what, what pain that are you going to 
solve for the for, for the developer and it tends to be strictly strictly financial so they want to see the financial benefit and they want to be able to assess the technology risk and for those who are unfamiliar lco is levelized cost of electricity it's basically what is the straight line like the bottom line cost that we can now deliver electricity for based on the embodied procurement costs effectively so and and the power yeah, and the other generated. yeah thank you for that yeah and the, the other element that, you know, I think helps Earthos and that, that we always emphasize um, and make sure that the, the developer is familiar with is, is also the team. So, you know, we didn't come up with this idea in a vacuum or outside of the industry or with limited experience. It's, it's you know, everyone on the executive team and the, the, the sales team, technical sales and, the whole, you know, there, there's a, you know, decades of experience in product development and specifically in utility scale um, uh, solar development. And so that's that's always a key thing to emphasize with customers. I'm glad that you said that because I wanted to bring it back to Charles and talk about team. Charles, you mentioned that you knew Jim, but you didn't just know Jim because you guys are in the industry together. You actually sold projects that Jim... Well, why don't you introduce like who Jim Tyler is and Remember, I told you we we uh, we acquired Gestomp North America. Well, there were ten project assets, and the first two assets that we brought to construction, uh, coincidentally, the first two that that Solar Frontier was going to build, and we were building them on on our balance sheet, both had Cliff PPAs. And uh, for those of you who don't know what that means, is if your project isn't done by that date, it's a pumpkin in the desert, right? So we own the projects, we bought them. Uh, someone needs to step in and build those projects. Well, it was kind of coincident to to Jim being a, a co-founder in a company called Depcom Power, who now is you know they're they're a huge force in the industry. This was Depcom Power's first project, and they took the opportunity to to jump into a a boat with a bunch of holes in it with me with Solar Frontier and Depcom. We jumped in and. The first two projects, we literally got them done within days or minutes of when they needed to be done. They executed, they got them done. That was the beginning of our of our relationship. And there was this there was this guy on our t- on the team, and like many construction projects, you know, things went wrong, right? Things went wrong with construction. Things went wrong with with change orders, whatever it might be. There was there was a guy on their team who just simply would never take no for an answer, meaning never take failure for an answer. And there's nothing that isn't possible. He became the bane of many people's existence at our company at Solar Frontier because he was the guy that just simply would not, he wouldn't go away. It was just the guy that wouldn't take no for an answer. Uh, he's a sales guy, he's a construction guy. And I said over the years, I, I damn it, I need, a, I need a Tyler on my team, right? Why can't you, why can't you be more like Tyler? So anyway, uh, Jim Tyler, Jim Tyler. Yeah. And I just, I mean, he's just a, a guy that, that I, uh, have an incredible amount of respect for. He's one of the smartest individuals I've ever met with that said, he's, he's Jim Tyler. He's, he's quirky. He's, he's different. He's a huge thinker as a dreamer. Our team is full of that, right? And we each have kind of our own our own personalities and our own lanes and our own set of experiences. Daniel is our, our, our thinker, our artistic, our creative mind, right? And, and Jim is our construction engineering mind. Just, just, you know, nothing can't be engineered. Nothing can't be constructed. Everything's possible. Chuck Smith is our, is our down the middle of the fairway, 
very uh, matter of fact executive that puts together a, a, a very crisp, very clear operations and maintenance business. And he's really good at pulling all of that together. He's, he's you know, he, he brings that organization to all of us. And then Keith Simmers, who has experience in project management and operations, our chief operating officer. And, you know, he brings the experience of, of project managing the largest project in the world at the time, 1.2 megawatt project in Abu Dhabi for, he worked for Sterling Wilson at the time, uh, 1.2 gigawatts. I mean, it was, it was it blow my mind just how massive that is. So all of that coming together. And then myself with not only module and technology, but construction, uh, but more importantly, the development and the project financing and kind of, I think brought a team together that just has uh, has seen so many different facets of of the movie that is utility scale solar, the the industry and the energy industry that we have, and and Daniel can tell you the story. I, I've heard it over and over again that you know when we saw your your documentary video, it was like you know this seems like a parody. But then when I I dug in and I saw the team that you have assembled to execute on this, there's got to be something there. And we hear that over and over from developers, from IPPs, private equity. I mean, you name it. You know, I worked at a tracker manufacturing company. I tried to do the same thing. Um, I've been through the same rodeo you guys are no doubt going through. You have to literally change the way they think about the way this product goes down, the way it is used, how the cost stack is affected, the hydrology of the site, et cetera. And the first thing I thought when I saw the little documentary, as you uh, quaintly refer to it, okay, if not for the team, I would literally dismiss this out of hand and say, this is a dumb idea. Like, this is like, why in the hell would anybody buy this? And then I look at the team and I go, holy crap, like Charles Pimentel and Daniel Flanagan and Jim Tyler. And the list goes on. People that I respect and admire in the industry uh, I'm glad that you actually brought this up because it's a question that's not just sitting in the back of my mind, but in everybody's mind that you just enunciated. What am I missing? What am I missing? What's so compelling about laying this module flat on the fucking ground? I'm going to have to mark this, not say for kids. Would compel Daniel Flanagan to leave Ojo, which is not slouching and like definitely like crushing it in the market. And would, would convince Jim Tyler to like completely separate from Depcom and go after this thing. And Depcom, by the way, is one of the fastest growing EPCs in the US. Like, so I'm sitting across from you as an IPP going, what am I missing, man? Cause like you guys don't, you're, we've talked about this. this is why I set an hour of setup. Like I trust that Charles and Jim and Daniel understand the economics of solar and the problematic scenarios on a solar site from grading to hydrology to everything else. Like, what can't you tell me and what can you tell me about yeah. what I'm missing, about why Earthos is compelling? Yeah. And, and this goes back to, you know, your reference to an IPP and what do you say? You know, aside from the fact that, you you know, when you go into a sales situation like that, you need to know more about your 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 target client than perhaps they know about themselves. Aside from all that, how do you address an IPP executive? How do you address a, a CEO of a, you know, 50 person developer company? And here's here's at least the way I'm I'm doing it right now. It's like, look, you've seen the video, you've seen some of our slides. We can talk about this. We can go around and around and around on the hundred questions that you're going to come up with. But I assure you, 
with seven to nine gigawatts of experience in development, construction, marketing, public relations, O&M that is behind this. We didn't just start this yesterday. This has been going on for over two years. I assure you, you're not going to ask a question that we have not considered. It's like someone will say, well, well, what do you do if it rains? Oh my gosh, I didn't even think of that. It rained? So point is what I typically say is, look, I know you have a hundred questions. I'm going to tell you why it is Earthos is here. And the reason Earthos is here is, is I don't want to call it a little known secret, but it's a secret that no one really wants to admit in the industry where we are right now. And it has to do with the way in which solar panels are, are financed, for one. But the biggest secret is that when we were back in 2000, I think this is probably 2013, when trackers started to come on the scene, right? And within two years, we went from 90% fixed tilt, 10% trackers to 90% tracker, 10% fixed tilt. You got to ask yourself, why did you put it up on a tracker in the first place? And the reason you put it up on a tracker was because the module price and the added energy you were able to get from a module at that particular efficiency warranted additional capital investment upfront to get that added energy out of that solar panel, given that price and that efficiency. Well, that was, you know, that was 2013. It's not 2013 anymore. The modules have come down 90% in price in 10 years, right? The efficiency has skyrocketed and it's continuing to skyrocket. And the prices, the real prices of solar panels continue to decline. There reaches a point at which the price of the panel and the efficiency of the panel is such that the added cost of that steel no longer makes financial sense to the Wall Street investor buying this project for 40 years. And if you can give me a minute to explain to you how those financials work from a CapEx standpoint, the, the engineering, let's break down the CapEx and let's take that CapEx and translate it to LCOE, to the, 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 basically the, the cost of the electron coming out of that plant that you as a developer are developing. Let's take the CapEx that we've changed drastically. We've taken you know, a $97 million, 100 megawatt tracker plant, and we've taken it to 76 million CapEx, right? 25% lower cost. Are we going to get the same energy out of it? Probably a little less. Let's call it 5% less. But as a solar IPP executive, as a developer executive, you know that if you can get 5% less energy out of the same plant at the same site for 25% less CapEx, the world is your oyster, right? But the amount of value that you can extract from that as a developer is limitless. And I'm going to, and I, I show the developers, you could take your dev fee on the same project and get it to where it's 2X or 3X on the same project, right? That's typically, that's why Earthos is what it is. It's worth, it's worth all of the engineering, all of the creativity, all of the the problem solving that goes into the water and the wind and the rodents and the, the, the erosion and the flooding and all of that that happens. I don't want to say those are simple, but that's just engineering. The reality is the business, the business situation around the world with the price of modules and the efficiency that they're able to achieve just simply it, it, it leaves you with, with no other option long term. Coupled with the rising cost of steel, right? Yeah, I was going to say layer on that. I was going to bring that steel in Steel going up forty percent <laughs> in six months, and and doesn't and doesn't show signs of slowing down for at least another half right. a year. Yeah, and Nico, I was going to 
also add like you know on the on the concept of like is this a parody is this real or this almost sounds like a joke i think there's a i i as a marketer i i do think there's a psychological element to that that initial reaction i think humans are trained to be worried about things on the ground right <laughs> like it like if you're if you if your cell phone's on the ground you want to pick it up really quick you know if your if your wedding rings on the ground you don't want it down there right it's like it's a place of danger in people's mind i think just intuitively but obviously that's an irrational you know, viewpoint, you have to look at the first principles. And obviously we need to survive technical diligence and achieve bankability. Everyone knows that. Yeah. I think that, um, I think, I think that there's probably stuff that you guys are probably, I have to imagine and in and, and disclosure to listeners, we haven't gotten into like a deep technical or philosophical discussion about Earthos in the past. So I don't have a deep insight into what exactly you guys are bringing to market other than it's a flat mount utility scale, uh, effectively racking system, like system deployment. Uh, obviously in the documentary, you show, uh, cleaning robots. I know that in the industry, that sort of ability, a technological advantage, uh, bodes well for competitors of yours who sell on the technological advantage of ro cleaning robots as strongly as, uh, the innovation around, uh, whatever racking or, or product they're trying to bring to market. Um, as the you know, as the person whose job is to craft the message for the product, how do you think, Daniel, about kind of what comes first from a messaging perspective? Do you try to hit people in the nose with like, all right, this is, here's the obvious thing we're going to say, we're going to say it in a non-obvious way and prepare in the back end for what we expect to be? Like, is this all, is that all part of the marketing machine to to put it out there in a way that forces people to reckon with, like, I don't know if I believe this. Mm -hmm. So specifically with the robot as an example? Sorry, that might've been confusing because I threw a couple of things in there, but um, is the, the, I presume that you have like phased introduction of products. And so, you know, how, how much of what we see in the documentary is actually deployable now, but also how much of, how much of the process of getting, coming out of stealth is creating tension versus uh, compelling people with possibility. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and certainly startups, you know, they, they can get, you know, out ahead of their skis, you know, and it, that's actually a requirement for startups, you know, to, to do. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, but it, it, it's not, it, it, at the end of the day, the level of required diligence, technical diligence and bankability for any project to move forward it 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 annihilates anything any any pretense or any kind of uh, you know false narrative around the achievability or the deployability of so our our product being deployed is because it's at a state of readiness it's a self-correcting situation you 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 can't really get a project off the ground if you, you if if what you have is not real you can't sell vaporware to a to a utility scale project period our first commercial system is in. It's up and operating. It, it's it's a 200 kilowatt AC project. It has a 25 year PPA. It's it's a real project. Interconnected with PG&E. It's in Kern County. We got full building permit, full uh, electrical permit. Um, the system itself is you know it's deployable. It's UL 2703 certified, right? I mean, there are an additional four projects ranging from 300 to about 700 kilowatt AC that we're going to build here in the next three to four months in California. And we'll call those our, our pilot portfolio. 
again, those are all real projects, real PPAs. They're they're in ag environments, so real harsh dust environments, um, relatively flat. Those projects are progressing, right? Our 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 kind of pilot portfolio is progressing and and operating. On top of that, Albi, myself, Arturo Alvarez, Paul Mintz, our team, others within our our company are literally, Nico, back-to-back calls every day with every IPP and every developer in the country, and even a number of them overseas. So we are are in evaluations, deep evaluations, I mean, reviewing contracts, reviewing we're helping them estimate their projects. We're helping them get bids on on modules that are compatible, earth compatible suppliers. We're in the midst of about two gigawatts worth of projects right now, and that's between now and say two or three years, two or three years from now, right? Every day we're meeting with with just about every major developer and IPP in the country. I mean, you could probably you'd have a tough time naming one that we haven't sat in front of multiple times. Uh, we probably have right now six active design projects going on with our company to do trial projects anywhere from a megawatt to five megawatts with with all the big guys, right? So this is happening. And then very early on, we teamed up with with a company bringing an extremely innovative financing vehicle to market. And part of that answers the question, how do they get any more competitive than anyone else? And they've innovated around the way in which they finance projects, ways in which they kind of borrow off of the way uh, real estate is financed versus solar. Just a completely different way of financing construction, development, and and you know long-term ownership of projects. So we're we're teamed with them. As of a week ago, we have been chosen not only as their technology. For two projects, they are in the in exclusivity to acquire. We are the exclusive technology that's going to go into 150 megawatts of projects. Uh, it's a 100 megawatt and a 50 megawatt project to be built next year. So again, stars aligning, planets aligning. They get through this. They sign their MEPA. We're off to the races with 150 megawatts of projects being built, literally being built next year, 2022, uh, with COD. So the pipeline is growing. It's growing very quickly, and there a lot of these are getting very real. And these are players that are doing, you know, let's call them, you know, some of the top five IPP developers in in the world, right? And so they're they've come to the realization they're like, well, shit, if if this actually works, this changes the calculus for our our business going forward by leaps and bounds. That that light goes off with every one of them. It seems you may also be getting, uh, there's, there's good engineering, good team, and then there's just sheer good luck. Uh, <laughs> two years ago, there's no way you could have timed the launch to coincide with a global shortage in steel and a, uh, an, an unbelievably painful increase in logistics costs for shipping, predominantly modules, but also around balance of system. So it's always good to have a wind, <laughs> the wind at your sure. back. And I would imagine just having spent enough time in developing projects that there are some legitimate conversations that I would be using in your shoes around, hey, look, why push this project out to Q3 of next year when you could do it sooner? And that would bode well for your technology. So kudos on that. I, uh, I would love to have <laughs> many more off the, con- <laughs> off, the, uh, off the record conversations about 
uh, some of the dialogue that you're having. Cause as a, as a project development and salesperson myself, I just love um, hearing that kind of strategy. But I also want to be sensitive to the fact that we have been, uh, we've been recording for quite a while now and, and there's a, a handful of things I want to hear sort of dig into or, you know, get your thoughts on to wrap the conversation. But I, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to just understand the complexity of introducing a product like this into the market um, and to be, you know, to have this chance to be candid with one another about what the market might be thinking. Because, you know, uh, I know that I have listeners who are doing similar things where the market is looking at their product going, really? What? And I feel like this conversation is going to be instructive for them uh, to be able to kind of do almost like a checklist. Like, do I have have I thought about it in terms of stacking the deck on the team and stacking the deck on experience and technology uh, de-risking? So uh, it's super helpful. Probably we, we could go for another two hours uh, exploring this. You both mentioned the value of mentorship, and we often talk about that on Suncast. Would either of you be willing to share uh, a moment in time where a mentor particularly helped you uh, maybe turned a light bulb on for you or helped you navigate a difficult situation that you otherwise would have been lost without? One that comes to mind to me is um, in the early days of Zep, um, one of Tony's uh, pieces of advice um, who, who we were talking about earlier that, and it's just, I, I wasn't thinking fully of it and it relates to this discussion of the team and an interesting piece of advice to come from, you know, the guy who developed, you know, the iPod and the iPhone, which is this, marvel of technology his message to me over and over and over was it it your challenge is not the the, the technology like the, the company was founded around the fact that you already have something that's good that's the premise right you got to focus on creating a, a good company an excellent company an amazing company and i previously had seen it more as a road exercise of you know putting a business plan and a financial pro forma together and make, making sure it pencils and getting some basic function in the company but his advice over and over was your key to success is whether or not you can build a highly functioning team and company, which is people and process and culture, right? I feel sometimes we can all get caught in this way as entrepreneurs, this mindset where we're listening to this kind of advice, but not applying it, not looking internally. Oh, somehow that's different. What they're doing is different from the kind of business that I have. And, and I look at, I'm listening to you and thinking, okay, how am Beyond the product, how am I thinking about building a highly functioning team that understands the systems and the process and, and, and is clear on how we are trying to make an impact in the world? That's super cool to hear that you've had that, that level of, uh, I'll say instruction, but sort of reflection from someone that we all see as iconic, right? Uh, to think, wow, not just iPhone and iPod and Nest, the, it's the team, right? This is the Jim Collins, good to great. It's who you got on the bus, not where the bus is going that matters. Hmm. Very cool. Any advice for, from you guys to fellow entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs who are currently facing headwinds? You know, you've, you've both been there. Yeah, my, I mean, my advice is just keep, keep your chin up, put your shoulder pads on and, and stay in the game. I can remember my father had started and sold multiple companies and I asked him one time, I think I was probably in high school. I said, don't you worry. You got, you're putting so much on the line, right? And we as executives put, we put a ton on the line. Ultimately, we may make a lot of money. We may, we may, we may not make nothing. Well, we may move, lose everything. And I said, 
aren't you worried about like losing everything? And he said, once you start worrying about losing everything, you've already lost, right? So as an entrepreneur, you can't go into it. It's not saying you do something, do something stupid, but if you believe in something and you plan properly and you work at it and you, you ask the hard questions, just keeping your chin up and, and not giving in to the naysayers uh, constantly, like I said, put the shoulder pads on and show up every day and just take the knocks and keep going. Got to keep moving forward. And um, feeling um, even immense amounts of anxiety is not necessarily an indication of your propensity to fail. I mean, I, I can, you know, I, so many times um, flipping back and forth between feeling so confident it's going to work and then feeling almost certain it won't. <laughs> And you're existing in, you know, model, you know, Excel models and, oh, shit, we didn't anticipate this or that. We're screwed. Not at Earth. Oh, but we got to not at Earth. <laughs> um, but that is the nature of, of, of doing something, you know, new and disruptive. You're, you're almost certainly going to have um, scary times and times of elation. And that's just part of the part of the game. Yeah. And the, the failure, don't don't take the failure, you know, to heart. We all experience failure and you just need to get back up and, and keep going. And, and one of the things I, I, I say, especially to salespeople, because they take so much rejection, is don't view your business work environment and all that as your intrinsic value, right? I, I used to ask people who wanted to be salespeople and say, are, are you a one or are you a 10? What are you from a one to 10? And depending on how they answered that, told a lot about the person. Because if the, the one that knows they're a 10, regardless of what happens, is, is always going to make a, a better salesperson. Because you're, you're going to face, you're going to face headwinds, you're going to face naysayers, but you always need to, to internally know you're a, you're a 10, right? And you are your own value as well. To the whole staying at a company a long time or whatever, or taking a risk. When we were acquiring a company... Uh, I was testifying before our board in, in Tokyo, and one of the one of the board members said, "Well, you know, we're we're bringing on 13 new people. What happens if this doesn't work?" And I said, "Well, uh, you know, it's a little different in the U.S. than than Japan." But what I said was, "Listen, this is the solar industry, and we're on the eighth floor. By the time all of those employees get to the sidewalk at ground level, they're all going to have new jobs. Don't worry about it." Your, your value that you're bringing and you're, if you're in this industry, you want to get in this industry, just, just, you know, you are your own value. Take risks and just keep getting back up. Daniel, I'd love to know, uh, maybe you can perhaps speak on behalf of, <clears throat> of both of you, but where do you guys like to be found? How can folks engage with you uh, if they want to learn more and want to know more about you? Yeah, I'd recommend as a start going to earthos.com, um, our explainer videos right at the uh, top of the page there. Um, and uh, it's a really good, good introduction. Get, you got you get good visuals on what the thing is, and what our vision for the product is, and how we want to impact the industry. And then we'd love for people to follow us on LinkedIn and be part of our community there as well. Fantastic. Well, we will certainly link to those in the show notes, and folks can definitely know how to find those at mysuncast.com. With that, I'll jump into our final question. What one thing do you see happening in the market? that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Yeah, crystal ball, what, what nobody's tracking. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say this about the US and it's not necessarily about solar, it's about the energy industry. 
I'm, I'm a firm believer. Um, and remember, I spent I spent nine years at, uh, at at Plug Power. I'm a firm believer that the U.S. will follow suit and will very quickly lead the world in the hydrogen economy. And solar is definitely a piece of that. Um, the hydrogen economy is very real. Uh, I've seen the numbers. We're seeing more and more of the technology. You know, when I when I went in and joined the hydrogen industry back in 1999, it was early, right? The first question you always got was, "Well, shit, what about the Hindenburg?" Right? But we've we as as uh, as an industry have moved way beyond that now. That's my my bold prediction for the U.S. that we will we will catch and and surpass the European uh, current hydrogen economy and and hydrogen will become global. And solar will be inextricable from that. Daniel Flanagan is the chief marketing and product officer, and Charles Pimentel is the chief commercial officer for Earthos, the company we've been exploring for the last couple of hours here. I am super grateful for both of you for sharing this amount of time and depth with the Suncast tribe. Thanks, Nico. Thanks, Nico. You're awesome. Your show is awesome. Thanks for the time. All right, all right, Solar Warriors. I am I'm so grateful for Daniel and Charles spending so much time with us. That was uh, really, uh, you know, it's an interesting modification of the way we usually do interviews, uh, which are one-on-one. We're trying to expand to do more uh, interesting conversations with multiple voices. And uh, I'm grateful for two folks that I've looked up to for a long time in our industry, respect and admire spending that uh, time with us. I hope that you have taken many things away from this conversation. What are they? I'd love to hear them. Would you reach out to us on LinkedIn and let us know? I know Daniel and Charles would love to know as well. Would you learn from this? How are you going to apply it to your own life and business? You can ping me directly or you can find the post that we've made of this episode on LinkedIn and drop a comment. Thank Daniel and Charles for giving so much of their time uh, to this episode today. If you are eager to keep learning, uh, then you, my fellow follow math, can find the resources and highlights from this and frankly, every other discussion uh, on Suncast, along with the social media links to connect with them on LinkedIn, recommendations made here in the episode and more at the show notes tab of mysuncast.com. I appreciate you and I hope that you'll show up again next week for our Tactical Tuesday and another long form episode like this on Thursday, wherever you're listening from. I'm grateful that you've dedicated this time to Suncast. Thanks once again to our sponsors for helping make it free to you to listen to this show. You can learn more about our sponsors as well as how you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean climate champions just like yourself at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>